Welcome to the Convergence Podcast. Please enjoy this message by Dr. Michael Brown. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And I want to open up an amazing biblical theme for you about strength out of weakness. It is something that I can open up to you scripturally and explain, but something that has to be caught more than taught. When you grab hold of it, when you understand it, when the spirit makes it real in your life, it's extraordinarily liberating and faith-building. And it really opens up to us how in God all things are possible to him or her who believes. So when Paul goes to Corinth, it's a city that is known in many ways in the Greek world. It is known for its its great speakers, its rhetoric. There were Olympic-type games that were held there. And Paul intentionally went, as he tells us in the second chapter of 1 Corinthians, that, that he didn't go trying to impress them with his speech. That, that he, in, in fact, he came in, in weakness and fear and much trembling, he says. And he says that his speech and preaching were not worth enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power, that their faith might not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And when you read through First and Second Corinthians, you see a constant theme about weakness, weakness, weakness. And, and when you understand this, and when we get to Paul's words later in 2 Corinthians 12, that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness, you get hold of this, it really is life-changing. So Paul has been speaking about the cross versus human wisdom, Verse 18 of chapter 1, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Then he says in verse 22, Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, Messiah crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Messiah, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. Notice this, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not. There's nothing less than being nothing, right? The things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Messiah Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. God delights in using human vessels, weak vessels, imperfect vessels, so that everyone will know that it is God who does the work, that no flesh can glory in his presence. 
And it's not because God is on some ego trip, but it's because he's the only one worthy of trust and adoration. And if you put your trust in a person, that person will disappoint you on some level. If you put your trust in God, he will never disappoint you. Let's just picture that a three-year-old boy comes running up to the platform here and, and is screaming and yelling. And I just grab him and I say, hey, hey, just calm down. No one's going to say, where did you get the strength to pick up a three-year-old? How did you do that? I mean, I'm almost 6'3". I'm in good shape. I can certainly pick up a three-year-old. No one's going to mar. How did you do that? And yet it's an interesting thing that when you see pictures of Samson, I remember Leonard Ravenhill, the great revival leader, became a close friend the last years of his life. I remember him raising this point years ago. When you see depictions of Samson in the Bible, right? There's a movie about Samson or artistic rendering of Samson. He's always this massive guy. He's this giant, powerful guy who got a little more powerful when God moved on him. If you picture, I remember being in the Atlanta airport one time, and there was this wrestler known as the Big Show, the seven-something feet, like 500 pounds, comes walking through the airport. I thought, I got I to gotta stand next to this. This is the biggest human being I've ever seen. I finally caught up to him by an escalator and went to give him one of my tracks. I just felt like a little boy, big giant man. I used to go to professional wrestling as a boy. My dad used to bring me every week to this place on Long Island, and I saw all the famous stars of that day, and I thought, this is a good way for me to introduce to talking to this guy, you know, tell him, you know, that when I was a boy, I used to go see, you know, all the famous guys, Bruno Sammartino and Buddy Rogers and all these greats from the Killer Kowalski, all these guys from the past, you know, because he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have seen them because he wasn't old enough. But as I caught up to him and he was so massive and I went to give him my track, it was like, when I was a little boy, I used to go to see professional wrestlers like you, but they weren't as big as you. I mean, suddenly I felt like this little child, like this massive man. Chai was a giant. He is a giant. If Samson was like that, it wouldn't be, Samson, what's the secret of your strength? <laughs> no, it, it'd be, man, you're big. You're one, dude, they use that term here, right? Yes? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> You're one big dude. But in the Bible, they were wondering, what's the secret of Samson's strength? It could be that Samson was a frail little guy. It could be that Samson was like four foot eight, 98 pounds. How'd you do that, dude? How'd you... How'd you pick up the city gates on your own? How'd you kill a thousand people with the jawbone of a dog? How'd you do that? God delights in working through weak, frail vessels because he gets the glory. We recognize that the excellency of the power, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, it's not ours, but it's his. We have this treasure in earth and vessels, he says, that the excellency of the power may be God's, not ours. I mean, if suddenly the Lord started giving me words of knowledge about people here, you wouldn't say, how'd you know that? Man, where'd you go to school? You got a PhD from NYU? No, I didn't learn that at NYU. That's the Holy Spirit revealing. The same way when you lay hands on the sick and they're healed, it's not like, 
What do you have in your hand? I don't have anything in my hands. In fact, how many times have you prayed for the sick and they were healed while you yourself are sick? It's like, I don't get that there's healing power going through my body, but I'm sick and they're getting healed. God delights in working through human beings that we might recognize that the wisdom and the knowledge and the power is. We often live as if God uses our best efforts and adds his blessing to it. We try our hardest, we do our best, we preach our best, we teach our best, we minister our best, we sing, we worship, we play our best, and God adds his blessing to it. And we certainly do our best. We are likened by Paul to athletes in 1 Corinthians 9, and we're called to run our race with discipline. We're likened to soldiers in, in 2 Timothy 2, as Paul tells Timothy to endure hardship as a good soldier of Messiah Jesus. We know that the Lord calls us to take up our cross and follow him and to deny our, our, our flesh. We understand all of that. That's part of our calling in the Lord. Yes, we run our race. Yes, we strive. Yes, we go. We do what we know how to do to do our very best, but we fully recognize that our very best efforts won't save a single soul. That our very best efforts won't heal a single body. I'm not talking about with medical effort. I'm talking about supernatural effort. We must recognize that it's not our best efforts plus a little anointing from God, but that it's all God working through us. And if it's all God working through us, then there are no limitations. Anything is possible. Anything is possible. Isn't it striking in Luke's gospel, the first chapter, when Mary, Miriam, asked Gabriel, how is this going to be? How am I, a virgin, going to give birth to the Son of God, to the Messianic King? How is this going to be? And he explains to her in Luke 135 that the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. He explains that, and then he goes on to say, and not only so, but your cousin Elizabeth who's too old to have a child, right? She's six months pregnant. For with God, nothing will be impossible. No word that he speaks will, will be impossible. Isn't it interesting that when God is going to do his most important redemptive act in world history, that he uses an old woman and a virgin, both of whom are unable to have children. Isn't that wild? I mean, right now, some of you might be feeling bad because you think, well, I'm too qualified. <laughs> I'm really gifted. Yeah, listen, what we do <laughs> is take whatever gifts, whatever we have, and we lay them down before the Lord, and then God works through that. Once we die to self-dependence, once we die to I can do it, I can change the world, I can make it happen, then God can take the gifts you have, your, 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 your computer skills, your knowledge, your, your personality, your musical gifts. He can use all of that, but we lay them down because in our strength, they can only do so much. See, it would be one thing if God said to me, your goal for the year 2020 is to be able to, to get your bounce good enough with your jump that you can, you can jam even one hand jam, if I get my, my hands never quite big enough to palm, all right? And you know the old saying, white man can't jump. That was me. I was one of those white men that couldn't jump, so I didn't get past freshman basketball. Well, the other reason I didn't get past freshman basketball is because I started getting high, but that's another story before I was saved. 
for those of you that are super sanctimonious, before I was saved, I was lost, okay? I was really lost. But, well, actually, getting high wasn't really the issue because they didn't have a rule because no one knew you were getting high. But you had to have short hair, and I started growing my hair long. So that's why I didn't play beyond that. But either way, I, I was not that good a player. That's the point I was making, all right? That's the point I was making. But I could, if I used a volleyball, because I get my hand around that, I could just barely jam that, okay? So now I'm, all, I'm in good shape. I'm in good athletic shape, but I, I, you know, my jump is miserable. If, if God said, that's your goal for 2020, I think I could do it. I think I could, I could get in good enough shape. I think I could have guys train me in terms of jumping skills and things like that. And I think that if I really worked hard, that I could actually get to the point where I could get, jump high enough. I mean, it might take a lot of work and effort, but I think it's possible that I could actually do it, just barely get a ball over the rim. Maybe lower the rim a little bit, but I, I just, I could do it. If the goal was, I am to take on LeBron James in a one-on-one full-court basketball game and beat him 21-0, well, in a million lifetimes, in a trillion lifetimes, that'll never happen. With all the world's best training, it would never happen. I wouldn't score a point. It'd be ridiculous, be hopeless, not even a chance, right? We often approach the gospel and our call and the Great Commission with the former mentality. I got to do my best. We got to try our hardest, and God can bless it. That's not going to change America. That's not going to reach the nations. That's not going to set the captives free. That's not going to bring down the strongholds and the cultural madness of our day. It's not going to happen. It's not going to set people free who are deeply confused about their identity, who are bound by sin. It's not going to happen. Our task is more like me defeating LeBron James in basketball. In the natural, it's hopeless. But that's what gives me such great hope because God said, go change the world. The Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples of the nations, right? All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. I'm with you always to the end of the earth, the end of the age. The Great Commission is basically Jesus saying, let's go change the world together in the power of the Spirit. It's completely impossible. And that's what gives me such encouragement because I can't do it. You can't do it. But with God, the same God that brought the Messiah into the world through a virgin, the same God that brought John the Immersive, John the Baptist, into the world through an old woman, the same God that fulfills his promises to Abraham through a man that's too old to have children and a woman too old to have children, that's the, the same God who raised his son from the dead, the same God who saves hundreds of millions of people through the death of a crucified Jewish carpenter in Rome, that same God wants to work through you and me. All things really are possible to him who believes. One of the, the greatest evangelists our planet's ever known, Reinhard Bonnke, recently went to be with the Lord earlier this month. I was in India when I got a text from Daniel Kalenda, his successor, and one of our graduates from our ministry school in Pensacola, Pensacola just the words, Reinhard is with Jesus. And if you're familiar with his ministry, literally multiplied tens of millions of Africans have come to faith through the gospel message that God gave him. And in one meeting in Lagos, Nigeria, 
they had 200,000 workers ready to counsel and meet with everyone that made a public confession of faith. So get your name, address, and then try to get you plugged into a, to a church. They had 200,000 ready, but 1.2 million people prayed in a single meeting to receive the Lord. I mean, these, these incredible, massive meetings with massive results, and they're, they're continuing. The harvest is even greater now, seeing amazing things happening uh, through the ministry there, and of course, so many other ministries that, that are active there. But two things I want you to understand. One, and Reinhardt says this in his, his autobiography, is that there were generations of people, missionaries, others that, that, that labored with tears for years, that, that literally died for the gospel in Africa, seeing almost no one saved. There was a journal entry, I believe, from David Livingston from the mid-1800s, saying the day will come when thousands of Africans will be saved in a single day. Let us not forget those of us who labored with tears for years without seeing a single convert. You don't know the seeds that have been sown, the prayers. The, you, you think, man, I'm not doing anything. If you're praying with tears, you're doing something. If you're groaning with a broken heart for souls, you're doing something. We're not seeing breakthroughs. You may be preparing the way for the breakthrough. There may be 10,000 strokes that, that are needed to bring down this giant stronghold, this, this giant tree. You don't know what stroke yours is, but everyone counts. That's one thing. The other thing is Bonky's own ministry, it was tiny when it started. He was called as a boy to be a missionary to Africa. His own father rejected his calling. His own father, traditional German pastor, didn't see it. Rejected his, his son's calling. Of course, embraced it and rejoiced in it later in his life. But in the early days, rejected it. His brothers turned away from the Lord. They rejected him. And when he goes over to Africa, he's not seeing any fruit. He'll stand on a street corner playing his accordion, singing to try to draw a little crowd and then preach all day, maybe get a person to hear him. He's ministering in the African country of Lesotho. He, he has a meeting in a, like a little hut kind of thing, as I recall. Five people, preaches his heart out. Nobody gets saved. Nobody. Nobody responds. Zero out of five. It's rough enough when your whole meeting draws five people. It's even rougher when you preach your heart out and nobody responds. That night, he has a dream. He sees a blood-washed Africa from Cape Town in the south to Cairo in the north. And he hears the Lord say, Africa shall be saved. Next day, he questions, did I really hear God? I, nah, it must have been something I ate. I mean, Africa shall be saved. There's little meetings here, I can't see anybody saved. He has the dream four more nights. After which, whenever he sees someone, he tells them, have you heard? Africa shall be saved. It's a long way from there to the meetings where over a million people in a single night make a profession of faith. From there to seeing literally tens and tens and tens of millions come to faith. The point is, it's the same person that was being used the whole time. It's the same Holy Spirit doing the work. And, and whatever it is that God's called you to do, however ridiculous or impossible the vision, if it's God, go with it. Yeah, be faithful in the little. 
If God's told you, you're, you know, you're going to be a multi-trillionaire one day, well, be faithful with the $11 you have today. Be honorable. If God's told you you're going to preach to masses, well, do a good job discipling your four-year-old kid. You know, start where you are. Live it out in your own home, right? If you're faithful with little, God will entrust you with more. You know, the principle of Luke 16, faithful with little, faithful with much. Faithful with earthly things, faithful with spiritual things. Faithful with that which belongs to someone else, then faithful with that which is your own. In the late 1970s, early 1980s, I, I reacted against some of my Pentecostal roots. I, I was somewhat embarrassed of kind of our anti-intellectualism. I, I questioned a lot of the doctrinal things I held to in the Pentecostal church. I was a strong, committed believer, but I was questioning a lot of things. I, I read a lot of books that were anti-charismatic and tried to convince myself, but I couldn't. The word was too clear. I just couldn't get away from what the word said. But I, I, I really, in many ways, left my first love. I was pursuing my doctorate in Near Eastern languages and literatures at New York University. I just wanted to be a biblical scholar and, and debate the rabbis and that kind of thing. But the things of the spirit, revival, that was just not on my heart. And, and, and committed, active, zealous, working hard for the Lord in many ways. But the devotion, the intimacy, the passion, that was waning. And in early 1982, God began to, to deal with me. Some friends were really praying for the fire to burn in my heart again. And God began to speak to me and show me that I'd left my first love. And it's a hard thing to admit, you know, to, to say, hey, I've been wrong. I've been wrong. God began to humble me and, and stir my heart and, 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 and then put a vision in my heart that he was going to pour out a spirit in our church, which was barely charismatic. You never saw anyone baptized in the spirit. Virtually, you never saw anyone healed and very, very little expression. I mean, we believed in these things, but barely at all. I was an elder in the church, and sure enough, the word God gave me came to pass. God used me. We had an outpouring in our spirit, of the spirit in our church. Lasted three months, six days. It was intense. It was glorious, massive repentance, hours of weeping, getting right with God. People mightily filled with the Spirit. And then ultimately the church divided over it. The pastor stood against it. Years later, he came to me with tears over what he had done. Said, Mike, the next time God moves, I don't want to miss it. But God moved us on. And, and we left the church so as not to be disruptive. But because of our leaving, it was considered disruptive. I ended up getting excommunicated for leaving. So here, my friends have turned against me. We're now in another church. I immediately went elsewhere to submit myself to another leader and just to kind of get rebuilt after what we had been through. My heart's burning for God, though. I'm in intercession and groaning and crying out. It's spring of 83, and God says to me, you're going to be in a revival that will touch the whole world. And here, I've just been excommunicated by my best friends for a move of the Spirit. I'm, I'm there in my house on Long Island on my face groaning and travailing in prayer. This is all new to me. The, 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 these types of experiences of the Spirit were beyond what I knew in my early Pentecostal days. And I can't shake it. God's saying to me, you're going to be in a revival that touches the whole world. And, and on the one hand, my mind's saying, you are crazy. You have been deceived. You're going off the deep end. Your friends are right. On the other hand, the more I pray, the more the fire would burn. And then had this vision that would burn in my heart over the years. You're going to raise up a school and send out thousands of radicals to the nations. Couldn't shake this. Well, sure enough, God calls us to be right smack in the middle of the Brownsville revival. Sure enough, we raise up a school. Within two years, we have 1,000 full-time students. Plus, within four years, we have missionaries serving in 20 nations. Boom, just exploded. 
I would share with my friends on Long Island what God had showed me about what was going to happen and what I was going to be part of, what we were going to see. And, and they'd come and visit in Pensacola where people came from over 130 nations. Whereas your pastor mentioned, the lines would form at 6 in the morning. This is for years. 6 in the morning to wait online for the doors to open at 6 p.m. for the service to start at 7 p.m. to go to midnight or 1 in the morning. And you say, why did the lines form at 6? Because the church said you can't get online before 6. Because people would leave the meeting like 1 in the morning, get some food, and then come back in their sleeping bags and camp out in the parking lot, start at 2.33 in the morning. And, and the pastor didn't feel good about that. He felt there should be some security. He said, all right, we will have a security guard there at 6 in the morning. That's when you can get online. And sometimes at the, the height of the revival, when you showed up at 6, the line was already a block and a half long. And I can go around the world and people will say, you prayed for me in Brownsville. God changed my life in Brownsville. People from all over the world. Here, okay, so, so you know me. I have a certain reputation. I have a, a certain internet presence, whatever. But I, I, was, no, I was finishing my doctorate at New York University in Semitic languages. You understand? I had no connection to any of this. I was not connected to a revival movement. God got hold of me. The Holy Spirit did it. And things he spoke to me about, he's done. And, and listen, I want you to hear this. The same God who spoke to me in the spring of 83 and said, you'll be in a revival. And I understood right in the midst of it, leading it. You'll be in a revival that will touch the world, touch the whole world. As surely as he said that to me and spoke to us about our school that would send out thousands of radicals to the nations, and there's more of that still to come. In the late 90s, he began to speak to me. And it continued intensely for years and continues into this day. As surely as there was a civil rights movement in America, there will be a gospel-based moral and cultural revolution in America. It seems counterintuitive. It seems impossible. He began to speak to me about my role being in the middle of it. Began to speak to me in 2004. Think of this. 2004, that's 15 years ago. And I know things here in California were a bit more radical even then. But he began to speak to me about LGBT activism. The T word was not as prominent then. Immediately I began to see that this was the principal threat to freedom of religion, speech, and conscience in America. And he gave me a clear word, reach out and resist. Reach out to the people with compassion, resist the agenda with courage. And if you're here, you got a family member or friend that identifies as LGBT, listen, they're not our enemies, the devil's our enemy. The devil wants to destroy lives. That's what he's about. We, we, have, we have the truth in the life. Let's, let's live it out and demonstrate it. Jesus shed the same blood for gay and straight alike. Amen? And every one of us comes to him broken. Every one of us comes to him broken and in need. At the same time, we recognize that there's a destructive agenda that's going to celebrate drag queens reading to toddlers in, in, in libraries that, that's, that's going to punish you if you don't celebrate Bruce Jenner as a woman. I mean, it's, it's a crazy societal agenda. That's our issue. People are friends. People we, we will die for. So God begins to speak to him about this in 2004. And I'm thinking, why me? What? I don't come out of homosexuality. If that was part of my testimony, I'd share it. That's not. I never had a particular burden to reach the gay and lesbian community. Even when a, when a, a, a close family member married a, an ex-gay, still God didn't burden me in that particular way. All my education is in a different field. Why, why me? I remember when I was asked to go on Tyra Banks' show when they were talking about transgender children. 
and focused on the family had recommended me. And, and I said, you understand, I, I'm, I'm not a doctor of like psychology or psychiatry. I, I know my PhD is not in family counseling or anything like that. I'm, I'm, I'm Semitic languages, Babylonian, you know, like that kind of stuff. That's, that's my degrees in, you know, Hebrew and all that. And I'm not, I'm not ex-gay myself. I don't have transgender experience. And they said, no, no, you're the right person. And, and, and I, realized, I realized a couple of things. One was that this was the issue for everybody, that this was the issue for the church that none of us could avoid, right? Both on the personal level, dealing with people, and the issue in our society, that this is one of all hands on deck. Everybody had to be in on this one. Therefore, here I am. The other thing I realized, though, of course, I'm a debater and, and, and not afraid to tackle the controversies and will do it with a heart of love. But the other thing I realized was that in itself, this is impossible. When God began to speak to me in 2004 about the rising tide of homosexual activism and, and pushing back against it, I looked around at the society. I read. I listened. I sat with people. I did my best to immerse myself and understand uh, different points of view. I looked around. I thought, it's over. We lost. We lost. I didn't start thinking that when the Supreme Court redefined marriage or where other things or where transgender became the new celebrated thing. I saw it 15 years ago. We lost. It's over. But God. But God. Listen to me. I'm in Jewish ministry. I, I reach out to rabbis and ultra-Orthodox Jews. And some of us have been going at it for decades, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. In the natural, yeah, you see Jewish people saved here and there, but we're not seeing, you know, tens of thousands of Jewish people saved all the time. We're, we're not seeing this happen. We're not seeing hundreds and hundreds of rabbis come or even, you know, rabbi here, rabbi. It, it, a little bit, a little trickle, a little here, a little there. But it's written in Scripture, Romans eleven twenty six. 26, all Israel will be saved. There's going to be a national turning of Jewish people at the end of the age. And that's more sure than anything I've said about words God spoke to me because that's written in the Word. That's written in Scripture. What's my point? My whole mentality is I live by the impossible. I, when it comes to turning the tide with gay and lesbian activists, it's all, forget it. It's hope. It's not going to happen. But God. When it comes to massive outpouring of the Holy Spirit and seeing millions of young Americans turn to God and get interested in Jesus, in the natural, it's impossible. But God. You know, it, it's a common saying in Jewish ministry that someone will come up to us and say, oh, I have a real burden for the Jews. We ask them, do you know any? You know, we have all these great ideals. We're going to change the world. There's this little poem you owe to be with the Jews in heaven. That will be glory to be with them here on earth is another story. You know, you get, oh, we're going to change this. We're going to do this. We're going to, we get so idealistic and then real life, real, oh man, we're going to touch the young people. We're going to really touch them. Right, easy. Go ahead and do it. I see a harvest of the millennials. Sure, let's see it. The religious nuns, they're going to they're gonna turn to God. Listen, I believe all this is going to happen. I believe crazy things. I believe impossible things. That's just normal for me. I am a real, I look at what's happening in the world, and my wife Nancy, also a Jewish believer in Jesus, we're married since 76. She is God's gift to me. She is the lead weight that holds down my helium balloon. She absolutely sees what's wrong and what's going to go wrong. And I, I sent her one time what I thought would be a dynamic opening chapter of a book, and she wrote back, 
She sent it back to me with words across the top in big red letters, total fail. <laughs> I said, hey, Hannah, I, said, I thought it's a, I really felt moved. And she goes, not to start the book. That's a terrible way to start the book. It's like, all right, I feel something good, but thanks. Thanks for the input, huh? <laughs> That's our life dynamic, trust me. That's what we live with all the time. She's a woman of faith, but she just sees what's wrong and sees problems. And I'm kind of like floating up there. My point is, if, if you listen to my radio broadcast or read my articles, I'm talking about messy, ugly things every single day. I, you have no idea how many people send me bad news. Have you seen this? Have you seen this? Have you seen this? Have you seen this? Most of the time, it's like, I wrote a book about it three years ago. Catch up, all right? Yeah, I've seen it. I'm on it. Trust me. I'm aware of it. I told you this was coming long before. I understand all the bad stuff. I understand all the hopeless stuff. I understand. I fully get it. Has America ever been more divided? Tell me the political solution moving forward here in 2020. Come on. We are in a mess. And so much of the church is just more consumers than disciples. It's reality. But God, God has given promises, and God is at work, and I'm full of holy expectation about what God's going to do, and he's just looking for available vessels. There's no superstar. There are no superstars. All God has to work with is regular people like you and me. And often the greatest work is done in ways that we didn't even realize we did it. And I remember one night in Pensacola in the midst of the revival, I got up and just to make some announcements before Steve Hill, the evangelist who preached every night before he was going to speak. And I did most of my teaching in our school and then day sessions, Friday day, Saturday day. So I just got up to make a quick announcement. And I said, hey, just a, a complete random, it was absolutely random. I was, it was not like I feel the Lord saying this or the Lord showed me. It was just random. I said, you might be a carpenter, you might be a mother of five. If God's calling you to the school, you need to come. Afterwards, this tall couple comes up to me. He goes, I'm the carpenter. She goes, I'm the mother of five. She said, we asked the Lord for one more confirmation if we were supposed to come, and we got it. And they ended up actually serving as missionaries in Poland for a season. But I, I wasn't conscious like, oh, I see five. I see mother. I see one, two, five children. Five, Yeah. Tall carpenter, tall, thin. Yeah, that's what I see. Anything else, Lord? Oh, oh God, yeah, got it. Okay, yeah, yeah. No, it's just, I, was, I made, Mike Brown, I made a random comment, but God is big enough to direct my words when I didn't even realize it. It's the Holy Spirit who does the work. I mean, I know we know that, but we need to know it bigger because what we're supposed to be believing for is bigger. What we're supposed to be expecting is bigger. The, the, yeah, it's, yeah, it's going to be one life at a time on the one hand. But who knows how it's going to expand? Just like that video, Can You Be Gay Christian? Who, who knew? We had no clue that it would be viewed tens of millions of times in, in hostile environments. We had no clue. You never really know how God's going to use your prayer or your witness or your giving or, or your role in a job. You never know. You know, I, I remember the story that Jamie Buckingham told. 
He was a well-known writer a generation ago, wrote a famous biography of Catherine Coleman. But he was teaching at our ministry school where I was on Long Island. It was a branch of Christ for the Nations, famous Dallas school that had a branch for a few years on Long Island where I taught, late 20s, early 30s. And he was just, gave a message, and one of the things he said was pay attention to the small things. He just gave some counsel for life. And he talked about there was a man with a few, few sons, all walking with the Lord except one. And he was, you know, solid, godly Christian man, solid family. The one son had turned away from the Lord. I think he was working in his backyard with a chainsaw, a freak accident, electrocuted, he died. Whatever the freak accident, he died. And at the funeral, Jamie Buckingham is there, knows the family, grieving with them. And the one son who's away from God, he's not there at the funeral. So at a certain point during the worship at the funeral, it is kind of a Jewish tune and kind of a little bit of a bounce to it. And, you know, sometimes in Christian funerals, a spirit of rejoicing comes in, even in the midst of the loss. And it started to be more of a celebratory mood. And the wife, she's now a widow, she grabs Jamie Buckingham's hand to jump up. She wants to dance before the Lord. And he's thinking, oh, I don't know. This is, you know, I'm dancing with the widow. It's, you know, it's a Jewish dance, but just he felt uncomfortable. But she grabs him. At that moment as they're dancing, the door swings open, and there's the son, the backslidden son. He looks, sees what's happening, and walks out. And Jamie Buckingham thinks, we'll never see him again. This must be utterly scandalous. His mother dancing, dancing with another man at her dad's, his dad's funeral? A couple years after that, Jamie Buckingham's in Israel. A young man comes up to him with a group of other young people, all excited, wants to chat with him. Jamie doesn't know who he is. You don't remember me? I'm so-and-so's son. He goes, that's you? Yeah, I said, man, I'm on fire for God. I got a group of young people here doing ministry. And he said, well, what happened? What was the turning point? He said, you know what it was? He said, when I stuck my head in at the funeral, He said, when I saw mom dancing and you dancing with her, he said, I realized this is real. (laughs) This is real, and i got to get my life right. I mean, who knew? Who would script that? Who would orchestrate that? God takes delight in working through foolish, weak vessels, through regular people, and he does impossible things through us so that the glory and the praise goes to him so that people end up worshiping him. Just a couple more scripture thoughts for you. I don't know if this is right or not, but it's a valid thought. We do know for a fact in Joshua 1 that four times he is told to be strong and courageous. Four times. Three times by the Lord, one time by the people. Now, that got me wondering... Why would he need to be told that over and over and over again? So as you understand, I fly a lot. I I fly a ton overseas a lot around America, and I personally enjoy flying. And I have no fear of flying, that the plane is going to come down or something like that. So what would happen if, if on my 
my way to a flight, I get a text from Nancy, hey, don't be afraid. Why would she be telling me, don't be afraid? And then right then, a call, hey, Mike, are you at the airport? Yeah, well, the Lord just laid it on my heart and told me, don't fear this next flight. And then I get an email, Dr. Brown, our intercessory team was praying, and the Lord said, tell him, don't fear to get on this next plane. You better believe I'm wondering now. It's like, <laughs> what plane? Has this been inspected? Are you, is there, do we call my assistant, Dylan, can we walk there maybe or take a car? I mean, if, if, if there's no reason to be afraid, why are you telling me don't be afraid? This is going to be the worst plane trip of my life. So when you think of Joshua, what do you think of? Courageous, warrior, general, leader. And he was. But what if either earlier in life he was always like this or at this point in life, now that Moses is gone, he's at least past 60, at least at the youngest, right? Because he's one of those 20 years old and older who doesn't die in the wilderness. So he, he could be 80 for all we know. But either way, Moses isn't there anymore. Maybe in himself, this is what I wonder about, maybe in himself he was a weak guy. Maybe the one that we know as the courageous general, we can take the land, maybe in himself he was an emotionally weak guy. And he needed God to say, be strong. Come on, you can do this. You can do this. Don't be afraid. You can do this. Come on. We're with you. Come on. Fear not. What does it say in Ephesians 6? Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You see, one of my greatest weaknesses is that I'm very self-confident. One of my greatest weaknesses is that in myself, I'm kind of fearless. I don't mean about, you know, jumping off a 100-story building, but I mean things that scare other people tend not to scare me in terms of ministry and other things. And the way God's wired me, I can do a lot. I'm capable of doing a lot in myself, but I can't change a fly in that respect in terms of the kingdom of God. And I've had to learn over the years to find strength in my weakness, to recognize my inability, my incapability, where I fall short. I'm not talking about walking in sin and disobedience. That'll destroy everything. I'm talking about, look, we all are frail one way or another. You, you get down to the bottom line of it, we are frail human beings. Look, if it rains too much, we'll die. If it's too dry and there's a fire, we die. I mean, we're just, we are dependent, uh, frail human race with all of our accomplishments. And God's had to teach me over the years to put my trust in his strength. And when I do that, anything is possible. I'm almost done. I remember when we started our, our daily radio show. And it's uh, over 11 years ago now, God had been speaking to me about being on daily radio, being a voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. I remember when he'd be speaking to me about it, it's like, God, how's that possible? Every day is different for me. I travel here, I travel there. Is it, it's not possible. Who has, you know, one or two or three hours the same every day? Because my schedule was so different. Then we had no connections. We had no funding. How's it going to happen? He kept speaking to me about it. And I remember it, talking to Nancy, and she knew it was the Lord also. And she said, you know, you have to be really careful because you could do a really good show on your own. In other words, I'm, I'm a talker, right? You know, every, every so often, we'll have, I, I've got a guest scheduled for a whole hour interview, 
And right before we find out, they got confused. They're in the wrong time zone. They're not available. So it's right there. I mean, the show is literally about to start. You're speaking to however many you're speaking to, and potentially we can reach several million people, but we're speaking to however many thousands, hundreds of thousands, God knows whoever we're speaking to, and suddenly there's no guest and you just have to talk. That's not a problem. You know what I'm saying? There's something I can talk about. And, and just with a little help from the Lord, I, I can do that. But that doesn't mean it's anointed. That doesn't mean it's, it's accomplishing God's purposes. That doesn't, believe it's, that doesn't mean it's changing anybody's lives. So a lot of things we're able to do, we're, we, we, find a, we, we find a certain comfort zone in ministry and life, and God wants to stretch us out of that because what he wants to use you in, nobody may ever know your name. It may be private, right? Or it may be something the whole world knows. But what he wants to do through you is completely impossible. Whether it's what he wants to do through your kids, whether he wants to do through your prayers, through your witness, you never know what God can do. But it's always above and beyond your ability. If, if you're a giver, he, he wants to enable you to give in ways that completely outside of your realm. Of, uh, you've never made that much in a year, and God's saying to you, you're going to give that much away every month. Like, that's impossible. Yeah, now you're on it. Now you're getting it. Good. Good. So in 2 Corinthians, close here, 2 Corinthians, Paul has begun building on this theme again, 10th chapter, the 11th chapter about weakness. You know, he's accused in the 10th chapter that his, his letters are powerful, but his bodily presence is weak. Then the 11th chapter, because he's dealing with all the superstar apostles, big shots, powerful. He says they're not even saved. They're, they're false apostles. It's workers of Satan. I was going to say miraculously I hear music, but I guess someone came up behind me. <laughs> See? There's the proof. <laughs> Praise God. But he says, okay, I'm going to boast. He goes, i got to be out of my mind to do this. They're boasting about how big shot they are. He goes, I'm going to boast. I've been beaten more than they have. I'm flogged more than they have. I've suffered more than they have. So I'm going to boast. I'm going to boast about my weaknesses. And then, speaking of himself in the third person, 12th chapter, he says, yeah, there was, there was a man in Christ 14 years ago, in the body, out of the body, I don't know, but he went to third heaven and heard things there that you can't repeat. And by the way, if you really make it into third heaven, you're not going to be blabbering about it here. You'll be on your face weeping and worshiping. And, and then he says that this man, which is him, he said was, was given a thorn in his flesh, some type of attack that was coming against his life. I think, as I've studied it and looked at it, it was the severe persecution that greeted him city after city after city. This was a, a, an antidote to, to pride. Because no sooner do you preach, you're getting stoned, you're getting dragged off to prison. Whatever it was, this thorn in the flesh, Satan buffeting him. And, and, and look at what's written here, all right? Verse 7, to keep me from being coming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace, which includes his, his divine power, is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Whoa. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses 
so that Messiah's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Whoa. And I've learned that a whole lot more, especially the last, oh, 15, 17 years with some things the Lord allowed me to go through and put me through, that I often start off, Lord, I'm in over my head. This is way too big for me. That many times in the midst of ministry schedule, an impossible schedule or crazy schedule, instead of thinking, all right, we can do this. I'm on my knees, Lord. This is too much for me. Strength out of weakness. And then instead of it being Mike Brown's best effort with the blessing of God, it's God's best effort through a human being. The differences are massive. So I want to encourage you to believe for crazy things, ridiculous things. Look, you know the history of Bethel pretty well. Look at where it started. Look at the world influence. Who knows what God can do? Through a song you write, through a prayer you pray, through someone you lead to Jesus, who knows? All things are possible. God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. The excellency of the power is his. And it's even in our own lives, just the struggles we have, the ups and downs, maybe sinful things we battle with. Cast yourself on God. Demonstrate your power through me. Same God that set me free from putting a needle in my arm in 1971, December 17th. I was known as drug bear, Iron Man, because I was such a heavy drug user. I encountered God in his love after being deeply convicted of sin. That's it. Lord, I'll never put a needle in my arm again. Free from that night on. That's God's grace and God's power. He can work it in every area of our lives. So I want you to stand to your feet with me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. And just open your heart to God. All things are possible. Lord, here we are, Silicon Valley, with a church, with a school of ministry. Lord, what do you want to do? What are your plans? How do you want to shake this region? How do you want to work through Google and Facebook and YouTube and a host of others? How do you want to touch the world and touch the nation? What are your plans, Father, for California? God, I pray for fresh dreams. I pray for increased vision. I feel the Lord saying to some of you, just, just take the limits off. Take the limits off. Some of you are afraid you're going to get out too far. Remember what I said, be faithful in the daily grind, the daily discipline. Be faithful in that, but then let the dreams go. Some of you said, yeah, I dreamed before and I fell on my face. God said, let's, let's get up and try again. Just like a kid learning to walk. That's how we all learn to walk. Fell on our face a bunch of times. God's saying to some of you, come on, let's brush that off. Let's move forward. Let's move forward. Thank you, Lord. Some of you still under a heap of guilt for past failure. Does the blood of Jesus cleanse or does it not? Lord, wash that away. Wipe that away. Take that cloud off, Father. Remove it. Just worship the Lord. I just feel he wants to speak. He wants to give words now. I don't mean so much prophetically, but directly to you. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. By your spirit, Father. By your spirit, Father. 
Lord, something fresh, Lord, any limitations that have unconsciously been put on my brother's heart or mine, remove them. Anything because of past experience, anything, Father, whatsoever, Lord, take limits off, Father, take limits off. Lord, fresh dreams and visions, fresh words, Lord, words you spoke years back that we've discounted, bring them back. Those that were really from you, bring them back. Father, this little part of America is so influential, so much power to change and influence the world. May it be for you, O oh God. May it be for righteousness. May there be a supernatural, impossible, holy revolution in Silicon Valley. May Jesus be exalted. Thank you, Lord. Just raise your hands to him and say, Lord, here I am. Here I am. Use me. Here I am. Send me. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. He's got nobody else but you and me. For the harvest, for freedom, for liberty, for salvation, for deliverance, for transformation, for cultural upheaval, for getting a life-giving message out. I pray even for connections here that would be impossible in the natural. For people right in this room right now, connections that would be impossible in the natural that you're going to make in the days ahead for the sake of your kingdom and for the name of Jesus. Why not, Lord? You're jealous for this world. Jesus died for every single soul. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Well, thank you again for listening. We hope that what was shared in this message leaves a lasting impact on your life and the lives of those around you. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe to our channel. God bless.